this is Senator Malcolm Roberts on Our Nation Today. PFAS is part of a group of man-made chemicals, sometimes called forever chemicals, because they break down so slowly. These chemicals, used in firefighting foams from 1965 until 2005, have left a legacy of contaminated sites all over Australia. There are 900 contaminated sites, including Defence Force bases and major airports. And because they break down so slowly, it will take generations to remove the contamination. PFAS has found its way to our homes into everyday products such as Teflon coatings in our cookware and Scotchgard waterproofing. There's a global treaty to eliminate PFAS and five other chemicals from the environment due to their harm to humans and wildlife. It's called the Stockholm Convention on Persistent Organic Pollutants and Australia is a signatory. The European Commission found that PFAS causes serious health outcomes in humans such as damage to the immune system in a way that reduces the ability of the body to fight cancer, reduced birth weight in newborns, increased LDL cholesterol, which is a risk factor for cardiovascular disease, decreased antibody response to vaccines, liver damage. The European Commission has set a safe intake level for PFAS of 4.9 nanograms per kilogram of body weight because of the ill effects of health. A nanogram is just one part per billion. The Morrison government refuses to accept that PFAS chemical has caused any harm. The government is refusing to offer compensation and to relocate residents in these contaminated red zones around defence bases, where a PFAS plume is spreading under their homes right now. A recent federal court case awarded some residents compensation that averaged $150,000 after legal fees. It was $212 million in total. This is a tiny part of what these people have lost, and of course, they're still trapped in the red zone in homes they can't sell. They're still being infected today. This is negligent and dishonest. Currently, Australia does not have a designated safe level for PFAS. Contaminated cattle in the PFAS red zones are routinely returning contamination levels of 400 parts per billion, which is 80 times the European safe level of 4.6 parts per billion. Food Standards Australia and New Zealand are currently conducting a review and we do expect Food Standards Australia and New Zealand to set a level, which we hope matches the European standard. The graziers still need to be relocated to a like-for-like property so you can get on with raising clean, healthy cattle to feed Australia and the world. Now, joining us is Professor Mark Taylor. Mark is a Professor of Environmental Science and Human Health at Macquarie University, Sydney, specialising in environmental contamination. He's been outspoken against this toxic legacy of firefighting foams and is calling for a national environmental standard for PFAS and PFOA. Welcome, Mark. What's the thrust of your work in the area of PFAS contamination? Uh, Thank you, Malcolm. Um, We have two ongoing projects in PFAS. The first one is looking at the remediation of groundwater using a technique called foam fractionation. And we're doing that using a company's uh, technolo- a company called OPEX Technology, who have the same facility or a facility like this installed at Oki. Essentially, what this does, it, it fractionates the surfactant, which is PFAS, uh, the top of the water column. We then skim it off and then we do that a couple of times and then we can analyze the water. We can remove about 99% of that PFAS in the contaminated water in the laboratory. What we're trying to do with that project is develop some metrics about what we need to, uh, you know, what we need to actually do in the field to maximize that process. The next stage will be ecotox on the produced water, the cleaned water. The second project, which is actually just finished and we have all the data, but it's not written up yet, was a clinical trial that was conducted with just under 300 
Melbourne firefighters. And that project looked at removing PFAS from people. Currently, there is no treatment for the removal of PFAS in humans. There is no, uh, there is no medicine or such as that. So what we have applied here, we've applied a process called phlebotomy, the removal of blood or plasma, and we've had three uh, groups. We've had the plasma group, the blood group, and the control group. And we've run this uh, program over 12 months, and the results are in, and we're in the, in the process of writing those up. But we think um, at the end of the day, we will be able to report on uh, a treatment, the only systematic assessment of uh, phlebotomy for uh, a treatment for PFAS in humans and hopefully we'll have some positive news uh, for the Australian community but also for uh, the global community for those people who have been uh, exposed to excessive amounts of PFAS. Thank you very much Mark you've covered the the aspects from humans and also from the environment. So what is the science on the transfer of contamination of PFAS from the environment to people and animals? Well I think PFAS is, an, is one of the many contaminants that we're exposed to in our industrialized lives. I mean, we are industrial beasts these days. We don't, we're not roaming the plains. And there are multiple contaminants that we can be exposed to that we should have concern about. Time's gone by, uh, it's less of a problem now. We were significantly concerned about exposure to lead through lead-based paint and tetraethyl lead. That's the lead additive added to uh, petrol or gasoline. And that permeated our homes. We're also concerned about microplastics, which are a really contemporary uh, contaminant. And we're obviously concerned uh, about perfluorinated chemicals. All of these things are pervasive and persistent pollutants. But for us to be contaminated to a serious extent, there has to be an exposure pathway. So with respect to PFAS, to the best of my understanding, the primary exposure pathway is either through water or food, which has been contaminated with uh, perfluorinated chemicals. And so what we need to do is measure, assess and develop acceptable standards or guidelines for what is the upper maximum allowable amount of PFAS in these substances, which are the primary source of exposure. I think we, we have to remember, we have to separate the two things from a contaminated environment and uh, exposure pathways. For you to be at risk from a contaminated environment, that stuff has to migrate from that place into your body. Now, I think we're gonna hear from uh, Alistair a, a bit later about a, a very clear exposure pathway, which is through uh, beef and the selling of beef and him also and his family uh, drinking and consuming the food produced, drinking the water and consuming the food produced uh, on his grazing lands. But if there isn't that exposure pathway, there is, very, there is a very low risk of harm on exposure. And we can see that as uh, when we look at population measures of perfluorinated chemicals in the general population. They have been declining over the last decade and a half. But when we move to uh, locations which are seriously contaminated, uh, Catherine, Oakey, Williamtown, for example, along, the, along with the many other ones in Australia and Europe and the United States, for example, people who are producing food and drinking the groundwater, it presents a, you know, it's a serious risk of harm and it's a definitive route of exposure. And they're the people we should focus our efforts on.
Can you, can you give me some more examples of the impacts on the environment on PFAS and also the impacts from PFAS on people's lives and, and some hotspots? Where are yeah. the hotspots? Well, I think um, the impacts of PFAS on the environment, you know, that's really emerging. There's all sorts of studies that are coming out that are demonstrating or suggesting that it's causing adverse effects in reproduction in sea life. And we know that PFAS... Once it gets into the, into the water, it's easily transported. As you've already mentioned, it's got a long half-life. And we've measured this now, well, not me, myself, but it has been measured uh, in animals living in the Arctic and the Antarctic. And so we know it's persistent and it's prevalent and it's easily transported. Can you give us some impacts of PFAS on people's lives and on yeah. humans themselves? Yeah, so actually this is a good question. You've talked a little bit about some of the risks of PFAS on, on people's lives. Um, we know that PFAS exposure is associated, and let's separate this issue between association and causation because the science is emerging, but the history of environmental chemical analysis and toxicology has showed that early concerns are usually borne out to be real, and the association shifts from causation. But I think the community at this moment would say, to be fair and balanced, that there is an association with PFAS exposure and a number of adverse health effects, which include low fetal weight, impaired human immune response, thyroid function abnormalities, increased lipid levels or fat levels in the body and liver function alterations, and an increased risk of several types of cancers, which would include kidney and testicular cancer. Now, this, as I said, the science is disputed by some, whereas others are more concrete about the science. And the Stockholm Convention is pretty clear about what they think about the risks, are, as do the Europeans. And I think it's clear that the Americans see that these are real risks. The CH study, which was ca carried out in the United States, and nearly 70,000 people in there were very concrete about the relationship between PFAS exposure and human health outcomes. In Australia, we haven't yet reached that level of acceptance of the global research. I think we will get there. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And I think in time, as the research comes out, we will see that some of these early emerging concerns are actually real, genuine, bona fide risk when the epidemiological studies are completed. Aside of those medical outcomes, what really I think is our biggest concern for our Australian communities is the fear of the unknown, the uncertainty and the stress and the anxiety that, has co that causes the communities with not one, understanding that there has to be a pathway for exposure and two, understanding what the consequences of that are. Many people are unnecessarily concerned about PFAS exposure because they're not subject to exposure pathways. But those who have been exposed, I think it's quite reasonable for them to be concerned about these emerging and serious uh, illnesses that may arise from that exposure. And you, you mentioned the international acceptance of the um, or recognition of the, the damage. Isn't it true that DuPont has settled a court case in the United States recognizing that? I'm sorry, but I've not across all of the details, but I know there have been numerous court cases in the United States, including 3M and DuPont. And my reading and understanding of the history of knowledge held by commercial companies is that they were long aware of the risks. It, does, it defies logic to me to say, oh, 
let's stop using PFOS in Scotchgard just in case there might be a problem. And it's a $16 billion business or whatever it was. For, for them not to be really concerned, they must have been, they must have known more than what they admitted to at the time. That, that's how it would seem to me because nobody pulls a business worth so much money and a product, which was a great product. It was a great product. And I'm sure we've all used it one time in our lives, unwittingly knowing what the possible consequences are. But so I think, you know, the industrial companies, as with tetraethyl lead, they knew for a long time what the concerns were. And I, I actually add in here that DuPont were one of the early producers of tetraethyl lead and they knew and we're still suffering the consequences in our cities and environment. And the stories have two really wonderful, if I can use the word wonderful in this sense, wonderful parallels. Industrial companies providing and selling us products and telling us that we really need these are going to improve our lives when they actually are bona fide alternatives. And what we see now with PFAS, we see it in eyewear, bakeware, we see it in clothing, um, we see it in uh, uh, food substances, we see it in pizza packaging. And a couple of years ago, when my son was about to start his primary school, my wife laid his clothes out the night before. Of course, we were proud parents. Henry's reaching uh, nearly he's five and a bit. And I said to my wife, what's that? And she goes, what? what? I said, that? What? Teflon? Why has these pants got Teflon? And she said, what's the problem with that? And I had to explain to her, you know, Teflon pants. Who needs Teflon pants? So we had to then, actually, it was very difficult to go out and find some plain, clean, straight cotton pants, which were Teflon free. But we're sold that we need these products. So our children's trousers and shorts don't get too stained. They don't get too creased. But really, I think I can live with a few stains and creases in the absence of using perfluorinated chemicals. So I think the message out of all of this is, you know, with all of these chemicals, it doesn't matter what it is, like what chemical we're talking about. They're industrial chemicals. They're not part of our natural makeup and our composition. They're not necessary items to our existence and our bodily function. In fact, quite the opposite. And as I said, Environmental toxicology and epidemiology shows that to be true for many of these arsenic, manganese, lead, perfluorinated chemicals, microplastics. You know, we'll get there with all of them. So we just do what we can to sensibly reduce our exposure. We have to be practical and sensible, but we need to reduce our exposure. And fortunately, as I said before, we can see that the levels of PFAS in human blood are reducing over time which is a good outcome for everybody. And that's largely because we've stopped using them in such prevalence in products. Thank you very much, Mark. I love your comprehensive uh, responses very much. Thank you. So let's move on then. In New South Wales, the defence base Williamtown has a cancer cluster on Cabbage Tree Road, which is inside the PFAS contaminated area. There are 30 cases of cancer in one five kilometre stretch of road. Oki in Queensland had a thriving local beef industry and PFAS contamination has decimated it. Beef producers have been forced to close to avoid sending PFAS contaminated cattle to market. There are still Oki beef producers in non-contaminated areas, so Oki beef that is available can be trusted. Those beef producers who were affected though took the hard decision to close down their livelihoods to ensure safe product in the marketplace. The consequences of these closures has meant that Oki beef exports, the local abattoir has lost a fortune. They recently commenced legal action against the government for contaminating land and water at Oki 
with PFAS. This has cost Oki beef exports $46 million and forced the cancellation of a $30 million expansion. These are Oki jobs that have gone forever. Beef producers have suffered financially for their ethical decision not to sell contaminated meat. David Jeffress from Oki joins me and is one of those producers having lost $2 million himself. David, thank you for joining us. There's no political will, it seems, of the government of the day, regardless of which party, or previous decades to deal with this. Is that right? Yes, Malcolm, it's uh, unbelievable that as a, as a food producer, a stunt beef producer, uh, and in 2021, our government of Australia don't have the political will to, to remove food producers and beef producers out of these contamination zones. Let's move on then. You and, and your partner, Diane, went into a class action. Was that the best approach? Malcolm, uh, Diane here this morning also. Um, to follow our journey, you would have to start at the beginning. And when you try to, to seek some answers from defence and get nowhere, you then turn to the next option, which was a class action. Now, people need to understand a class action suits a majority of people. A beef producer in these sites will never be the majority. We may have the majority of the loss per, per head, but we will never be in the majority. So a class action doesn't suit you, but you make the choice, as we did, that you join a class action for some sort of hope of compensation. Thank you very much, Diane. And, and just another question before we move on. Uh, the, you arrived in the area at the time the Defence Department knew about the contamination. You bought your property and the Defence Department just seems to run away. I know as a senator, it's been extremely frustrating and disappointing that the way the Defence Department just won't face up to this. And you, you're basically, you've got your whole retirement tied up in your property. You invested everything in the property and so you've got nothing now and no one wants to talk to you. Is that right? Yeah, that, that's right, Malcolm. When, when we came here, they knew about the uh, pollution going through our property for decades. They, they you know, we're, we're from a family, both of us, over 100 years in the family, each side of, of beef producing. We came here, you know, not, not retirement, but semi-retirement to, to spend time together and spend time with our grandchildren produce really good stud cattle and, uh, you know, we, we brought an unimproved place. We, we developed irrigation, we farmed, we grew our crops. We had the top genetics all over Australia. So we started and, and we set up our retirement only to find out that what we were spending money on, what we were setting up was a worthless place. And, yes, it's, uh, uh, they sat back and they watched it watched us do this, they knew about it, they could have told us not to buy in this area, but our government and our Defence Department stood idle and did nothing. And, and that is very hard to understand in this day and age. And it's not just one government, it goes back to decades. You know, decades. It, it, was, it was withheld, information was held between ministers, prime ministers, government departments, and they withheld that information from communities like Oakey, Williamstown, 
Catherine, and many others across Australia. So, yeah, today, today, who would have thought we'd be still talking about this? Who would have thought that a, a government would have come and, and, and spoke to us? They've been to our place. They made lots of promises before elections to sort it out. Who would have thought in 2021 we are still talking about this? But they, they are fighting us with everything they got. Yes, I, I can verify that. We've gone into battle for you and they are fighting with everything they've got. Uh, and they haven't got truth on their side, but they're still um, twisting and contorting. Now, it's also something that even though I've known you for a couple of years now and been supporting your cause and advancing it, it still brings almost tears to my eyes when I hear what's happened to you. And I want to thank you very much on my behalf and also on behalf of all the, the constituents that we serve across Queensland and around Australia, because you voluntarily cut your production because you did not want to see your contaminated meat go, beef go to market. And yet you're now in a, in a difficult position and the Department of Defence of all people will not come to your defence. Instead, they continue to attack you. So anyway, I just want to thank you very much and we will continue to support you, David and Diane. We thank you for that, Malcolm. And, and, and add one thing to that, Malcolm. Uh, we, we are instructed by this government and defence to sell our meat onto the market. It's not something we don't like being here, we don't like doing. We are told not to eat our veggies, not to have chooks, don't eat eggs, and don't eat our meat. The government and the defence has told us we must sell it on, and we have, we have queried that, and we have queried the rights of the consumer, and the defence and government have told us we don't have a right to be moved, and the consumer doesn't have a right to know they're eating this. So it's... That's all I can say. It's just not right, Malcolm. So what I say is you and we are being highly responsible in trying to protect the beef industry. All you want is the government to fix your hotspot. Our beef industry here in Queensland has been very supportive of us right from the word go. Our Brahma Society, our Shaolay Society, the Australian Registered Cattle Breeders Association have put pen to paper on, on lots of letters to the government they have told us right from the word go to be on the front foot, take the fight up. So, yeah, there's some that say don't talk about, but overall, the beef industry want the government to sort this out. So we, we have never had, never been criticised from our beef industry here in Queensland. Thank you very much. That's important. I've seen the letters of support and the letters from the beef industry uh, associations to the government supporting you and what needs to happen out of fairness. Thank you very much, David and Diane. Around the world, companies are taking measures to remove PFAS from their products. Levi's, New Balance and 80 other clothing companies have removed PFAS from their clothing, camping goods and related products. Semiconductor companies have removed PFAS from their chips and boards. McDonald's have removed PFAS from packaging. I've met with McDonald's about removing PFAS from their food supply chain and I hope to meet with food retailers shortly. Meat and Livestock Australia, though, are best placed to run a whole-of-industry response, yet they refuse to take action on PFAS contamination in Australia's meat supply chain. This is risking Australia's reputation as a clean, green supplier and exporter of red meat. A red meat industry is worth $28 billion a year. This is serious business. Joining us is Alistair McLaren. He's a beef producer who has seen his business decimated by the PFAS plume coming from RAAF base Richmond in New South Wales. Welcome, Alistair. And what's been the impact from PFAS on your business? 
Well, firstly, I'd just like to say thank you, Malcolm, um, and your team for being so supportive of um, of our cause, this cause that's um, just absolutely devastated us. And I really don't know how we would have got through it without um, um, David and Diane and the support that they've given us. And I really don't know how they've got to where they are now. It's just, um, you should have just been cleaned up before now. But anyway, our business, 100% um, um, collapsed, finished. We in the beef industry have to um, do livestock production assurance. And our livestock production assurance says, uh, are you concerned if there's any contamination when we when we do when we re-accredit every couple of years, and we weren't 100% happy that we wouldn't be contaminated, so we contacted our first point of call is our local land services, and they came out and they said, well, we think there's a bit of an issue. Um, let's take it up with the EPA. The EPA said, uh, okay, they didn't really want to come when we called them, but when when local land services district vets called them, then they had to act. Our vet was berated and told to stay out of it um, in, the, in the first instance by his superiors. Um, so we obviously knew that there was a real problem that it was contaminated. Um, we were told just to sell the beef, but don't consume it ourselves. The, the figure that was given to us by New South Wales Health was 200 grams a month. Our business um, was local farmers markets and, and um, delivery uh, throughout Greater Sydney. And we produced a grass-fed clean product that was right here, low food mileage, um, grown in the Hawkesbury, sold mainly in the Hawkesbury in the local area. The 200 grams would have, would have finished our business alone if we were told our customers don't take any more than 200 grams at a time, considering that our, when we processed an animal, they were 200 kilo bodies of beef. We would need a lot of customers that only sell 200 grams to each customer. When we inquired about how they came at a figure of 200 grams per month that we shouldn't eat, they said the that's based on a figure of 19 nanograms per mil of blood in the animals. We then asked, can we please get our animals tested? Um, then they refused. Then we weren't happy with that, not knowing that this is a contaminated product and we wanted to definitively know whether we can continue our business or not. We engaged with Channel 9 and they paid for the testing of the cattle in um, in return for a story. We then found that a 24-hour-old calf had 80 nanograms per mil of blood um, in, in a 24-hour-old calf. So therefore, we went through and we tested older animals all the way through to the saleable type animals that we're selling, which was in excess of 200 nanograms per mil of blood, which blew their figure of 19 nanograms out of the water um, for what we did. And we made a decision we would never sell any contaminated beef to anyone ever um, and we're now three years down the track and we still have um, still have PFAS levels in our cattle. So it's been devastating. Uh, uh, totally, totally. And our consumers came to us because we had a, a cleaner product than what was available and they knew where it was coming from and they trusted the farmer that was growing it.
And and some of uh, David's, just as an aside, some of David and Diane's cattle have uh, PFAS levels in the blood even higher than yours. So we, we know it's there. We've only been on, we were only on that lease block for three years. And we had, our cows ended up with levels of over 500 in three years. And as a result of that, our family all have elevated levels. I'm in the top 20% in the country of PFAS levels in the blood, equivalent to a firefighter, a career firefighter. And it, it is ingestion of, of, the, of the product. There is some dermal exposure, which is why Levi's have, uh, and other clothing manufacturers and um, the PPE gear for firefighters has been changed a bit. But um, the, the main, main pathway is ingesting. So that leads to the next question. PFAS is being removed from clothing, tents and packaging. Yet we can't seem to get the government to acknowledge that PFAS is harmful. Is that statement accurate? No, they, they say it's toxic. They admit that it's toxic. But <laughs> because we don't have a level set to say that that's, that's too high in beef, so we just let it go. So, I don't know, make sense of that. Obviously, we can't. McDonald's has had the guts to start to address PFAS in its packaging and supply chain, yet Coles, Woolworths and Hungry Jacks haven't stepped up. Why are the rest of them taking so long to recognise this is a dangerous chemical? Maybe they're listening to the government. They told us there's no problem with it either, but just don't eat it. I'll give you the reason, Malcolm. It's easier to do nothing than to do something. That's simply the answer. It's easier just to not change anything and ignore it and avoid applying the precautionary principle and looking after your customers. It's easy to avoid it than to actually do anything because to do something, as McDonald's have discovered, requires going right through your, your food chain and your packaging and the preparation and everything and dealing with it. And that's what you would expect a responsible company to do, to apply the precautionary principle they go, well, do we need it? Yes or no? Well, actually, no, we can do without it and then deal with it. it it's often the case that it takes a long time for companies to, to step up and make these amendments. And often it's, it becomes then, you know, a weight of, you know, a, a weight of action. Like once one company does it, then the rest will follow. It's a bit like, you know, carbon neutral by 2050 or, or, or whatever number it is. We've seen... We've seen a lot over the last five years, significant changes in views from the government, significant changes in policy. But what, when you look at companies and what they're doing, they're stepping up and they're making the changes. And then by default, the landscape changes. And that's what's going to happen. One company will make the changes, then another one will do it. And then the rest won't want to not, not do it because we'll be going, well, I can get BPA-free plastics, PFAS-free materials. I'll take the company that sells that over this product. That's what will happen. And the market forces will just, you know, once one company's accepted the science, market forces will then drive that change. And it'll happen faster and more rapidly and won't require legislation than what will need to be applied by the government. Let's ask a simple question then. As the users of the chemical, the Department of Defense has affected people's lives. Why can't it settle up and provide like-for-like relocation or compensation to the people who have been affected by their use of the chemical? And then, why can't they sue the manufacturers of the chemical for restitution 
so that the Department of Defence is not out of pocket? Well, I, I don't, I'm not the defence. I can't actually answer that. But it's the same sort of principle. You know, once you've admitted liability or you've admitted that there's a problem, then you have to deal with it. You have a li- once you admit there's a problem, there's liability, potentially. And you have to deal with it. And the problem's enormous. And it's intergenerational. And at this moment, you know, obviously the defence doesn't have a, a bottomless pit. And defence is defence. They're not an environmental organisation. And they may well see it's outside of their remit. But, uh, you know, getting compensation from the original polluter who may be ill-informed the users of their products is certainly something that needs to be th- thought about. Because the cost of cleanup, you know, why should we bear the cost of cleanup when somebody else has made profit out of pollution? And it's the profit out of pollution which doesn't sit well with me. Thank you very much, Mark. And it's not only profit out of pollution, it's out of people's ill health and the destruction of livelihoods. So one final question for you, Alistair. I questioned Meat and Livestock Australia in Senate estimates earlier this year. And Meat and Livestock Australia said that PFAS in meat is not a concern. Is there any doubt about whether PFAS is a concern? Malcolm, there, there is no doubt, zero doubt, that it's not a concern. It's a concern, it's a health concern, and it's a proven health concern. And it's also, um, for the greater Australian beef industry, it's a major concern. Um, like we said, the European Union won't take contaminated beef, they only have to pull out one sample that's contaminated and they shut the market down. Does China? China won't take it. The US don't want to take it. No one wants the contamination in their beef. And it's contamination. It's a toxic chemical. Everybody says it's a toxic chemical. And then we, we you can't sell contaminated food at a restaurant. Well, why is the beef producer any different? We, we value add our product. So we turned it into steaks and sausages and hamburgers. So therefore, it's it's food. It's no longer a cow. It's actually processed food. When we sell that, and we legally we can't sell a contaminated product, but here we are being told by meat and livestock there's not a problem with it. But they don't even know what levels are in it because no one tested them. And there's no ongoing testing. The only ongoing testing in, in New South Wales is is on our cattle, on our farm, by David Springer. And at this stage, our calves still have high levels because the mothers keep passing it on. So we're three years down the track and we we still have levels in our cattle and who knows what consequences they will bring about in the breeding future of the, of the females. Thank you very much, Alistair. And it's a point that I, I need to emphasise because David and Diane have reminded me that restaurant owners and food servers have regulations they must comply with about contamination of the food and yet here's the government saying go ahead to the beef producers and just dish it out. The legal ground around PFAS has shifted recently though. Last month the case was resolved in the ACT in the federal court that found a firefighter's non-Hodgkin lymphoma was caused by repeated exposure to PFAS from firefighting foam that he came in contact with as part of his job. Now this is huge. For the first time in Australia, an insurance company has agreed that PFAS has caused cancer and has paid compensation to the person involved. The United Firefighters Union of Australia has worked for years to get justice for their members for health damage caused by PFAS exposure. The health impacts of PFAS are not going away. 
These are forever chemicals. Contamination is getting worse because remediation has been limited and based on a refusal to accept the pervasive nature of the problem and the serious health impacts it causes. We cannot have residents living in the middle of these highly contaminated red zones, abandoned, discarded and unable to move out. The government must offer them like-for-like relocation. Food Safety Australia and New Zealand must introduce a national standard for PFAS in food. Meat and Livestock Australia must get involved and lead a whole-of-industry response to removing PFAS from the meat food chain for the sake of Australian consumers and for all meat exporters. The government should now honestly settle with these people and then get compensation from DuPont, as was the case in settlements of American lawsuits. In fact, the company, DuPont, has put aside billions of dollars for settlements, proving that it expects to compensate more people who DuPont harmed. Thank you for listening to Senator Malcolm Roberts on Our Nation Today.